Welcome to Today on Broadway for Friday, August 11th, 2017. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. James made it through another week, kind of the first week that felt semi-normal, although completely abnormal because there's a bunch of weird stuff, but normal in terms of the amount of theater news we got. So starting to feel a little better. Um, obviously, there are some of those things that happened throughout the past week that I wish obviously had not happened. Um, but in terms of my my need for information, I'm not shaking right now. I'm not having any withdrawals. I'm feeling okay and kind of calm about the level of theater news we got this week. So you're not going to surrender? Oh, Jesus. Well, you led me there with the terms of your... I know. Well, it's nice that we're starting to get news, so we're back to dad jokes and transitions as well. So it feels like old times. <laughs> exactly. Critics review Michael Moore's The Terms of My Surrender. Yeah, yesterday at Broadway's Belasco Theater, Michael Moore's One Man with Occasional Guests show The Terms of My Surrender officially opened. Directed by Michael Mayer, the show will play a 12-week run on Broadway and features Moore's iconic, yet sometimes controversial, political commentary. We do have a short clip of the show at broadwayradio.com as well if you want to check that out. The reviews for Moore's Broadway debut were mixed to positive, I'd guess, if I had to classify them. Matt Winman of AM New York wrote, quote, the show was a fun and freewheeling night of theater for Moore's fans and anyone else who wants to attend. Frank Sheck of The Hollywood Reporter said, quote, its theme, which he hammers home again and again, is that one person can make a difference. By the time you walk out of this inspiring and unexpectedly entertaining show, you will feel like you can as well. However, others weren't as kind. Sarah Holdren of Vulture wrote, quote, In an interview with Time Out, Moore promises that for 87 minutes, you're going to experience something you're not expecting. The show runs 110 minutes, by the way. But my feelings upon leaving the Belasco Theater can best be summed up with a long sigh. If I had had to make a guess as to what Michael Moore or what a Michael Moore Broadway show would feel like, this would have been pretty much it. The terms of my surrender feels like a live version of my Facebook feed. A few good stories and a boatload of preaching to the choir. Add requisite helpings of self-congratulation self-congratulation, and liberal on liberal shaming for full effect. Jeremy Gerard of Deadline wrote, quote, The terms of my surrender is heartfelt and represents the thinking and ideology of a crucial voice of dissent and opposition at a time direly in need of such voices. But it's a lazy show that severely underestimates its audience. Preaching to the choir is one thing. Pandering to it is of a somewhat lower order. James, I'd have to say none of this is particularly surprising, as Holdren said. And as I've said before, I I worry about Broadway and theater, specifically in New York, becoming an echo chamber that relies on anger and and alienates people and just kind of focuses to make us feel better without adding something positive or constructive to the conversation, which I think art ultimately should be. Now, I'm not saying that Moore's show does this because obviously I haven't seen it, but I do worry that these types of things, along with the perhaps well-intentioned Julius Caesar and Central Park, further isolate the arts community from the segments of the population that might not see the world as we do ultimately undermining the thing that art does best, which is opening people's minds. So I haven't seen it. I know you're going to see it next week. Um, so I'm hoping that there is something in there that can, you know, for lack of a better term, reach across the aisle. Um, if anybody on the other side of the aisle actually decides to go and, and kind of work to make things better rather than perpetuating 
the nasty divides that we all live through on a daily basis. The only thing I could say about this is that um, it's Michael Moore, and we're walking in knowing who Michael Moore is. We can really imagine and guess. Uh, I I don't. What I'm saying is that I don't think much of this show should be a shock to anybody. True. Uh, and um, so I, I guess it's uh, preaching to the choir to to some extent and it's also I think he uh, this is what Michael Moore does this is his storytelling and this and he also is um, a storyteller who's trying to make it edible to many of the people who have not been engaged with the story so far and maybe this is <laughs> the wrong crowd because you know I, I think that theater people are much more engaged uh, socially and politically, and maybe that's just an overestimation, but I really feel like theater people are are more engaged in what is happening. I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree. So, no, what were you going to say? Well, I, I, I completely agree with what you said. I, I just feel like that even though this is Michael Moore and everyone knows what to expect from Michael Moore, and I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by anything he says, the fact that he's on Broadway uh, that is new. That is something new. So when you kind of combine that with things like Julius Caesar and other things, I think it might, if this becomes kind of a hot button issue for a lot of people, um, specifically on the right, I, I, I just wonder if they might lump it in with some other things and continue to kind of drive the narrative that the arts in general are so left-leaning that they don't listen to anybody else and they just hate everything, which I don't think is true, obviously, but I, I just worry that that could kind of help fuel that narrative by a certain population on the other side, and and uh, that just worries me. So um, who knows? Maybe this will completely blow over and no, no one will uh, kind of worry about it who doesn't already like him, but I just kind of uh, – why can't we all just get along, James? Why can't we just all get along? <laughs> Uh, are you going to see the uh, the new Al Gore uh, follow up to An Inconvenient Truth? I w my brother actually asked me to go while we're recording on Thursday night. He actually asked me to go, and I had to tell him uh, I couldn't go with him because I was recording. So my brother is actually there as we are recording right now. <laughs> but, but, so I'll see it eventually. Yes. Um, but I feel similar to that. That this is Al Gore, and this is his topic, and and we know walking into it what what to expect there and we're going for a little bit of therapy and a little bit of <laughs> True. camaraderie and a little bit of more information uh about what's happening and um i don't know it, i i forget is there have been any discussion about michael moore's show on broadway being recorded not that I've heard, but uh, it would not surprise me if someone like Broadway HD did it. But I would actually think it might actually be something more that's released uh, commercially in movie theaters first, just because of the the scope of, yeah. of Mike Moore's appeal. OK, so let's get on to the next round of critics. The uh, critics went back to see A Doll's House Part 2 with a new cast. So tell us about that. Yes, absolutely, James. A Doll's House Part 2 received incredible reviews and acclaim when it opened on Broadway back in April. But last month, following an extension, producer Scott Rudin announced that three of the four cast members would be leaving the show at the end of their original contracts. So replacing, replacing recent Tony winner Laurie Metcalf is fellow Tony winner Julie White. 
replacing Oscar winner Chris Cooper is one of your favorite James uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson and replacing Condola Rashad is Aaron Wilhelmy uh, remaining in the role that she originated is Tony winner Jane Howdy Shell. So as critics are wont to do, they went back to the John Goldman, uh, John Golden Theater and re-reviewed the production with the new principles. So far, as of recording, we only have one review, um, but there's no embargo on these. So it's pretty much whenever they get the article written, they can post it. So if you're interested in hearing from other critics, uh, definitely check out the interwebs on Friday and over the weekend and maybe on Monday. They should be appearing as a bunch of critics have gone back this week. The review we do have is from Deadline's Gerard, and he wrote, quote, the, speaking of the cast, they're brilliant. White has a light touch and game business as Nora, bringing out the comic shadings in contrast to the darker woman played by Metcalf. Henderson, a theater treasure and essential to the film of Fences, is magisterial as Torvald, at once self-composed and enormously touchingly vulnerable. James, I know this is a show that a lot of people love, and I know you are as over the moon for Stephen McKinley Henderson as I am for Julie White. Um, so I would imagine that even if the grosses have dipped a little bit following the original cast's departure, this is still a show that is in very good hands and should be due and should be very good to see, a very good option for people to see through January when it finally closes. Sure. What a cast. I'm going to have to uh, schedule myself in there to see, see this as well. Really, really excited about this. All right. Like a bad penny. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, really? It's a dad bad? I, I always enjoyed it. <laughs> no, I'm just giving them a hard time. The Jersey Boys are coming back to New York. Yes, in really completely unexpected news, yesterday it was announced that the long-running, Tony-winning Broadway staple Jersey Boys would be coming back to New York this time off-Broadway just 10 months after it closed its more than 10-year run at Broadway's August Wilson Theater. The Four Seasons musical will now play New World stages beginning this November, uh, as it was on Broadway and pretty much everyone else around the world. The show will be directed by Des McEnough and choreographed by Sergio Trujillo. Casting and official dates will be announced soon. James, New World stages doesn't have, obviously, nearly the seating capacity of the August Wilson, but Jersey Boys was still doing fairly decent money at the time, you know, when it announced closing, you know, coming in at about $500,000 a week, um, especially, you know, pretty good considering it's been on Broadway for over a decade, um, and isn't particularly a kid's show. So I guess if it worked for Avenue Q, it could work for Jersey boys. There's probably a still a pretty hefty crew that would come see that. Obviously that's what we've always speculated is keeping a Bronx tale open. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is an audience for this, but, uh, you know, Avenue Q is a much smaller cast, and so you can make that work in a smaller theater uh, revenue-wise and cost-wise. I don't, I don't know if they're going to reinvent Jersey Boys, but I think, especially with those great tight harmonies and all the other stuff happening there, in a smaller theater, I think this is going to be really impressive. Yeah. So, uh I hope that they can make the numbers work because I'd really like to see it in a small theater because I think that's going to be really cool and hopefully maybe not mic'd. So, Ooh, uh, that might be tough with all of the instrumentation, but that would be cool. It is a I don't know where they're going to put a big orchestra. You know, so. Well, I, they very well might have to pare down both the cast and the band, but uh, – it's such a fun show. I mean, I know yeah. people kind of roll their eyes at it just like they do for a lot of long, long running shows, but I've seen it two or three times and I've enjoyed it every time. 
Yeah, I, I will definitely go see it. I, I really enjoy Jersey Boys, and I think it's really great. And, uh, and certainly, um, you know, in a smaller venue like that, I'm really looking forward to it. All right, what's up in the show and casting news? Well, yesterday we learned that stage and screen screen star Kristen Milioti, last seen on Broadway originating the role of Girl in Once, will lead the cast of After the Blast, written by actress and writer Zoe Kazan. Joining the erstwhile mother in the Lincoln Center LCT3 cast will be Ebony Booth, Will Connolly, William Jackson Harper, Ben Horner, David Pegram, and Teresa Yin Q. The show, which will be directed by Lila Neugebauer, will begin performances at the Off-Broadway Clairetoe Theater on October 7th and is currently scheduled to play through November 19th. After the Blast is set in the wake of total environmental disaster when the human population has retreated underground. Experience is simulated, fertility is regulated, and Anna, played by Miliati, and Oliver, played by Harper, have one last chance to have a baby. Sticking with the once alumni news, yesterday we told you about Tony and Grammy winner Steve Kazee's Instagram post announcing that he was playing Henry uh, Gondorf. I don't remember how to say this character's name now that I see it in writing. I haven't seen The Sting in a long time. Anyway, the Paul Newman role from the musical adaptation of The Sting. Well, last night he took to social media again to post a picture of the cast. And you all know how much I love this stuff, the casting and stuff behind the scenes. So in the picture, I recognize... Ariana DeBose, John John Briones, Patrick Page, Tony winner Katie Huffman, Car- uh, Carrie Compare, Preston Boyd, and Shooter McGavin himself, Christopher McDonald, and there's many, many others. Obviously, there's no con- confirmation as to which, if any of these actors will continue with the project when it moves to the paper will paper mill playhouse for its world premiere next March. Um, but that was really fun to see a lot of cool stars. I always love seeing these pictures of workshops and labs and readings and stuff because there's just so many people that you recognize. And even if they'll never be involved with an actually stage production, it's cool to see who was actually involved at the very beginning. But James thinking about this paper mill playhouse world premiere, it got me thinking about something else. There's another world premiere coming of the Paper Mill Playhouse pretty soon. In fact, we're about a month and a half away from the first preview of the Honeymooners Honeymooners musical, and we don't have a cast yet. So I would keep an eye out for that announcement very soon. Maybe not today on a Friday, but maybe sometime next week or in the you know the next few weeks as they get ready to start rehearsals. During the developmental process at various times, such theater luminaries as Tony winner Michael McGraw, who I would imagine is still attached, has been involved, as has Tony nominee Megan Hilty and Tony nominee Laura Bell Bundy, the always hilarious Hank Azaria, and James someone who you and I have talked about ooh, over a year ago now that we think deserves to be a much bigger star. Leslie Kritzer has been involved. So uh, it'll be fun to see what, if any of these performers end up spending uh, a month and a half out in Milburn, New Jersey, uh, doing a, a musical version of the Honeymooners. I'm excited to see what happens there. And then uh, finally in this section, James, yesterday it was announced that Fox and Telsey and company would be holding an open casting search to find the right actor to play Ralphie in the upcoming A Christmas Story Live. They are looking for a Caucasian boy aged 9 through 12 who is cute but not handsome and could possibly be a little pudgy. If you think you might be or might know a boy that could fit that role, check out the full details in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. <laughs> All right. The LA Times takes you behind the scenes of Hamilton's four month run. Yes, James. Today is the day. Much to the unbelievably eternal delight of my Some Like It Pop co-host Jennifer McHugh, who's been under the weather for the last few weeks, so I'm glad that she's feeling better. The first national tour of Hamilton begins performances at Los Angeles' Hollywood Pantages Theater 
tonight. It will run there through the end of December. And Jen not only has VIP tickets for a creative team Q&A next week, but she also has tickets to no less than three performances, which I'm sure out in L.A. are not cheap. Anyway, yesterday, the L.A. Times posted a really cool article looking behind looking at the behind-the-scenes stuff that that shows you what it takes to move a production like Hamilton into the Pantages. They talk about the three semi-trucks, which is apparently quite small for a, a Broadway touring show, that bring the stage, props, and costumes to town. And even though the set is fairly simple, it is an exact replica of the one on Broadway, so it does include both turntables, something that the creative team discussed whether or not to pare down to just one or to keep it as two. Um, so that actually arrives before the rest of the property the article interviews the show's production supervisor, Jason Bassett, and the general manager, Nick Lugo, about the finer points of taking the show on the road. If you are a production wonk like me or a Hamilton obsessive like Jen, I think you will really get a lot out of this article. And James, right before we, rec- we started recording, I took a look over the New York Post, and uh, it looks like Michael Riedel has a look at some of the costumes of the um, – of the world premiere of Frozen that's going to be happening out in Denver later this month, actually next week. We talked earlier this week about the behind-the-scenes look that Michael Paulson got with the New York Times. Michael Riedel now has some looks at the costumes, which, as we said the other day, are kind of based on more traditional Norwegian uh, folk garb. So there's some cool pictures on that. So we'll put a link in the show notes at broaderradio.com if you want to check that out as well. So the behind-the-scenes look at the tech on the road um, – Many years ago, there was, I want to say, some sort of Channel 13 or something like that, some uh, documentary type of thing about Starlight Express. Oh. Uh, when Starlight Express tour. Starlight Express. You must confess, is it me? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, sung by Elder Barge in a concept recording. Oh, oh God. Boy, what's in my That's head? a weird one. Oh, well. Um, so anyway, uh, Starlet Express actually had two entire sets that leapfrogged each other from city to city because it took weeks to set up, uh, the tour, the national tour. And, uh, they talked about, about having, you know, two entire sets and, you know, one heading to one city and one heading to the next city after that city so that they could set up and break down in time to get to the next thing. And then the cast would, you know, in essence, perform on two different sets from one, you know, one stop to the next. It was really very interesting. Uh, If any uh, listeners out there uh, knows, you know, where we can find that, I don't know if it's on YouTube or something like that, or if anybody's got a tape of it, I'm sure Matt would appreciate seeing that. I just want to see the costumes and the roller skates. That's all. <laughs> okay, roller girl. Well, why don't you get us out of here? <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening to today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt. And subscribe to something like a pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for wrapping up the week with us. And uh, on Sunday, this week on Broadway, where Peter Felicia and Michael Potantia will be joining us. And Matt and I will be back on Monday. Mm-hmm.